Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 199. And I know I promised to you that the next episode would be about the night before, but I'm going to change it up. I was reminded that having mentioned the circumstance of Paul Landis on several occasions, but at least up to this point, not covering much of what he has said, and then presenting Sam Kinney's original statement from November 30th, 1963. And as you know, the tidbit in that episode was that in his statement, just eight days after the assassination, he indicated that the shot had come from the right. Well, it was pointed out to me that Landis has said the same thing, and I have alluded to it. So why not present exactly what Paul Landis said and do that right on the heels of what we've already presented for Sam Kinney? There were a lot of Secret Service agents who were right there who thought the same thing. And that's the concept here. Officially, there are two statements made by Paul Landis. One dated November 27th, five days after the assassination. And then another one dated November 30th, eight days after the assassination, and dated the same day as Sam Kinney's report. The second report is considerably longer than the first report. And there are some details that are slightly different. When I was a kid growing up, there was a cartoon that appeared every weekend in the Fort Lauderdale News. It was entitled Hocus Pocus, and it was two identical or nearly identical cartoon pictures. And you were to figure out, after looking at both of them, what the differences were. They were so subtle that it was often very difficult to point them out. But once you found them, the differences were obvious. Well, I'm going to make it easy for you, but I won't do that until you've listened to both versions of his statements. Let's see how many of the hocus-pocus differences you can find between November 27th and November 30th. And remember, within any hocus-pocus set of cartoon pictures, much is exactly the same. So stay tuned, listen carefully, take notes, and then let's compare what you see and what I heard. And we'll do that at the end of the episode. Landis's first statement was made on November 27th. We'll read it in its entirety, and then afterward you can listen to the follow-up statement that was made on November 30th. So here goes the first statement on November 27th. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy, as it appeared to Paul E. Landis, Jr., Special Agent, U.S. Secret Service. 
I was assigned to work the follow-up car from Love Field Airport, Dallas, Texas. My position was on the right rear portion of the running board. Special Agent John Reddy was on the running board ahead of me. Special Agents Hill and McIntyre were on the left-hand running board. Special Agents Bennett and Hickey were in the rear seat. Mr. Kenneth O'Donnell and Dave Powers were in the middle seats. And Atsack Roberts was in the front seat. And Sam Kinney was driving. I remember the motorcade reaching the end of Main Street in downtown Dallas, Texas, turning right and approaching a gradual left turn. As the president's car approached the intersection to make the left turn, the crowd appeared to thin down and almost end. As we reached the intersection, I made a quick surveillance of a building on the right side of the route, which appeared to be the last one that the president would pass. It was a modernistic building, about eight stories high, with large glass windows. None of the windows were open, and I did not notice anyone standing by the windows. My first thought was that the building was either closed or that all of its employees were on the street corner. As the president's car continued around the corner, I returned my gaze to the crowd along the right-hand side of the route and noticed that it was fairly scattered. I continued to look ahead to what appeared to be an overpass over the route we were traveling. At this point, the president's car and follow-up car had just completed its turn, and both were straightening out. At this moment, I heard what sounded like the report of a high-powered rifle from behind me. My first glance was at the president, as my eyes were almost straight ahead at that time. I did not realize that the president had been shot at this point. I saw him moving and thought he was turning in the direction of the sound. I immediately returned my gaze to the building, which I had observed before. At a quick glance, saw nothing and dropped my eyes to the crowd at the intersection, scanning it quickly from right to left. I saw nothing out of the ordinary and thought that the sound might have been a firecracker, but I couldn't see any smoke. In fact, I think I recall Special Agent Jack Reddy saying, What was it? A firecracker? I remarked, I don't know. I don't see any smoke. All during this time, I was scanning the crowd and returning my gaze to the President's car. By then, I think I had my gun out, but I did not recall exactly when it was drawn. I then thought that maybe... One of the cars in the motorcade had had a blowout that had echoed off the buildings. I looked at the front right tire of the president's car and saw it was all right and glanced to see the right rear tire, but could not, as the follow-up car was too close. In fact, from my position on the running board, the follow-up car, I could not see the rear bumper of the president's car. I glanced back towards the president. He still appeared upright in his seat leaning slightly toward Mrs. Kennedy. It was at this moment that I heard a second report and saw the president's head split open and pieces of flesh and blood flying through the air. And I also remember Special Agent Clinton Hill attempting to climb onto the back of the car at the time the second shot was fired. I would guess that the time between the first and the second shot was approximately four or five seconds. My reaction at this time was that the shot came from somewhere towards the front, but I did not see anyone on the overpass and looked along the right-hand side of the road. 
By this time, we were almost at the overpass, and the only person I recall seeing was a Negro male in light green slacks and a beige-colored shirt running across a grassy section towards some concrete steps and what appeared to be a low stone wall. He was in a bent-over position, and I did not notice anything in his hands. By now, the president's car and the follow-up car were traveling at a high rate of speed. As we passed under the overpass, I was looking back and saw a motorcycle policeman stopping approximately where I saw the Negro running. I do not recall hearing a third shot. Signed, Paul E. Landis, Jr., Special Agent, November 27, 1963. Landis had a title for his November 30th report. The Assassination of John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, at Dallas, Texas. Statement of Special Agent Paul E. Landis, Jr., United States Secret Service, concerning his activities and official duties on November 22, 1963. On November 22, 1963, I arrived at Love Field Airport, Dallas, Texas, at 11.35 a.m. Having traveled from Fort Worth, Texas to Dallas, Texas, on board U.S. Air Force Flight number 6970. Upon my arrival, I disembarked from the aircraft and I immediately walked to where the motorcade vehicles were parked. Special Agent Sam Kinney was the first person that I recognized, and I remember speaking to him and standing by the follow-up car and jokingly asking him if he could tell me where the follow-up car was. After speaking to Sam, I walked over to Special Agent Wynn Lawson just to double-check to see if I was still assigned to working the follow-up car as had been previously arranged. He was standing by the front right fender of the car in which the President would be riding, and he told me that I was still to ride in the follow-up car. Only a very few moments later, the President's aircraft was pulling up to its mooring spot, and I moved up to where I could be near the President and the First Lady when they disembarked from the aircraft. There appeared to be a very large crowd at the airport, and most of the people were restrained behind a chain-link fence, which was about four or five feet high. On the opposite side of the fence, from the crowd, there was a very narrow sidewalk and curbing, which ran along the fence line. There were several people on the same side of the fence as the president, but most of them were photographers. As soon as the president and first lady disembarked from the aircraft, Mrs. Kennedy was presented a bouquet of roses. The president was also presented what appeared to be two hand-drawn charcoal portraits of himself and Mrs. Kennedy in a black leather and glass folding frame. I believe that this was given to him by a lady wearing a red coat. Just after the president received the black leather frame, I held out my hand and he handed it to me. I had been standing just off to Mrs. Kennedy's left 
slightly in front of her. She was on the left side of the president. At this time, the president and the first lady started walking towards the crowd, which was restrained behind the fence. On the way, they did stop for a few seconds to talk to an elderly lady in a wheelchair who was on the field area, about 30 feet from where the above presentations were made. They then walked over to the crowd and walked along the fence from their right to their left. At first, I was in front of the president, clearing a pathway through the photographers and observing the crowd reaching over the fence. But I noticed that Mrs. Kennedy was moving along slower and became separated from the president. So I asked another agent, I don't recall who, to move up where I was, and I dropped back to assist Special Agent Clinton Hill, who was next to Mrs. Kennedy. I continued to keep a pathway clear for Mrs. Kennedy, removing small hand signs that had been dropped in her pathway on the sidewalk and occasionally cautioning to watch out for the curbing. At one point, where the direction of the fence made a right-angled turn to the left of the way we were moving, I do remember reaching up and holding a fairly large flag away that someone was waving over the fence. Only a few feet further, and the fence and sidewalk made another 90-degree turn in the direction in which we were originally moving. At this point, we stopped momentarily and started in the direction of the cars, which were slightly behind us and had been moving along towards us. Mrs. Kennedy asked where the president was, and Special Agent Hill noticed him continuing along the fence, shaking hands with the crowd. So Mrs. Kennedy returned to the fence and did the same. Only a short distance later, the president and the first lady stopped shaking hands and entered their automobile. I stood by the right rear side until the car started moving and then hopped on the right rear portion of the right running board of the follow-up car. I was standing with my right leg on the running board and my left leg over and inside the follow-up car. I stayed in this position until we were leaving the airport area and remarked that I might as well get all the way in, and I did so. I glanced at my watch, but I don't recall the time. Special Agents Glenn Bennett and George Hickey were seated to my left, respectively, in the rear of the follow-up car. Mr. David Powers was seated directly in front of me in the center position of the follow-up car, and Mr. Kenneth O'Donnell was seated on Mr. Powers' left. Special Agent Sam Kinney was driving, and ATSEC Roberts was seated in the right front seat. Special Agent John Reddy, Clinton Hill, and Tim McIntyre were standing on the right front, left front, and left rear portions of the running board, respectively. The motorcade had not proceeded far when Atsec Roberts asked me to get back on the outside running board, just in case, which I immediately did. The crowd was about too deep along each side of the road, and I would guess that we were traveling about 20 miles per hour. As the motorcade proceeded towards the main business section of downtown Dallas, I watched the crowd for anyone trying to run towards the president's car or any person who might be holding anything harmful in his hands. I observed the rooftops and windows of the buildings along the route. 
On the outskirts of town, most of the buildings were of a one- or two-story type structure, and very few people were on the rooftops. The crowd was three or more deep along the street as we proceeded towards downtown Dallas, with most intersections more heavily crowded. The outskirts seemed to consist mostly of used car lots, junk dealers, auto parts stores, and this typical type of neighborhood. At one intersection, there were some Cuban pickets, but I don't recall exactly what their signs said, except that they did have Cuba on them. A little further towards town, some people had a sign asking the president to please stop and shake hands, which he saw as he passed and stopped. I immediately ran up to his car as it stopped and assumed a position next to him and observed the crowd as it merged on the car, especially watching the hands. Most of the people were children, but I do remember one of the adult ladies who was holding the sign remarking, It worked. Our sign worked. At various places along the route, I remember Mr. Dave Powers standing up and taking movies of the president's car and the crowd. The closer we came to downtown, the larger the crowds became. At several places, they were forcing their way into the street, and there was just barely enough room for the cars to get through. There were two motorcycle escorts on each side of the president's and the follow-up car, and in several instances, the crowd was so close that the motorcycles could not get through and had to drop completely behind the follow-up car. During these instances, Special Agent Clint Hill would run up and jump on the left rear bumper of the president's car, and he would ride there until the crowd was further back away from the president's car. Just before we reached the heart of downtown Dallas, I remember noticing some new-looking, very high, multi-story skyscrapers, and I remarked to Jack Reddy that there were even people way up on the roof of one. I think the motorcade made a right turn onto Main Street, as that is the only street sign I saw and remembered. I remember thinking to myself that about every town I know of has a Main Street. I'm not sure how far we traveled on Main Street, but I do know that this is where the crowds seemed heaviest. The buildings were tall on both sides of the street, but I didn't notice many people in the windows. I continued to scan the crowds on the street and the buildings along the route. I glanced at the president's car somewhere along Main Street and saw Clint Hill again standing in the left rear bumper behind Mrs. Kennedy who was seated to the president's left. Governor Conley was seated in front of the president, and Mrs. Conley was in front of Mrs. Kennedy. The crowd lined both sides of the street, and in general, and in several places, was right out into the street, leaving barely enough room to get through. Not long after we turned onto Main Street, there was one boy who, I would say, was in his early teens, who ran out from the crowd after the president's follow-up car had passed and tried to overtake the president's car. I saw him coming and tapped Special Agent Reddy on the shoulder and pointed toward him. He was carrying a camera. Special Agent Reddy jumped off the running board, overtook the boy, and pushed him back into the crowd. 
When we reached the end of Main Street, we turned right and approached a gradual left turn. As we approached the intersection and while we were turning left, the crowd seemed to thin and almost disappear around the turn. I then made a quick surveillance of a building which was to be on the president's right once the left turn was completed. It appeared to be the last one in sight. It was a modernistic type building, approximately eight stories high, and it had large glass windows. I also seemed to recollect orange paneling or siding. None of the windows were open, and I did not see anyone standing by them. I surmised that the building was closed or that all of its employees were out on the street corner. As the president's car continued around the corner, I continued to survey the crowd along the right-hand side of the road and noticed that it was fairly scattered with hardly enough people to form a single line. I continued to look ahead to an overpass over the route which we were traveling. At approximately this point, I would say the president's car and the follow-up car had just completed their turn and both were straightening out. At this moment, I heard what sounded like the report of a high-powered rifle from behind me, over my right shoulder. When I heard the sound, there was no question in my mind what it was. My first glance was at the president, as I was practically looking in his direction anyway. I saw him moving in a manner which I thought was to look in the direction of the sound. I did not realize that President Kennedy had been shot at this point. I immediately returned my gaze over my right shoulder toward the modernist building I had observed before. With a quick glance, I saw nothing and immediately started scanning the crowd at the intersection from my right to my left. I observed nothing unusual and began to think that the sound had been that of a firecracker but I hadn't seen any smoke. In fact, I recall Special Agent Jack Reddy saying, What was it? A firecracker? I remarked, I don't know. I don't see any smoke. So far, the lapsed period of time could have been over two or three seconds. All during this time, I continued to scan the crowd, returning my gaze toward the President's car. It must have been another second or two before the next shot was fired because, as I recall, having seen nothing out of the ordinary, I then thought that maybe one of the cars in the motorcade had had a blowout that had echoed off the buildings. I looked at the right front tire of the president's car and saw it was all right. I then glanced to see the right rear tire, but could not because the follow-up car was too close. I also thought of trying to run and jump on the president's car, but did not think I could make it because of the speed at which we were traveling. I decided I had better stay where I was so that I would, at least, be near the first lady to whom I am assigned. I think that it was at this point that I thought, faster, 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 thinking that we could not get out of the area soon enough. However, I don't have any idea as to how fast we were then moving. I had drawn my gun 
but I am not sure exactly when I did this. I did leave my suit coat unbuttoned all during the motorcade movement, thinking at the time that I could get to my gun faster this way if I had to. I glanced toward the president, and he still appeared to be fairly upright in his seat, leaning slightly toward Mrs. Kennedy with his head tilted slightly back. I think Mrs. Kennedy had her right arm around the president's shoulders at this time. I also remember Special Agent Clinton Hill attempting to climb onto the back of the president's car. It was at this moment that I heard a second report, and it appeared that the president's head split open with a muffled, exploding sound. I can best describe the sound as I heard it, as the sound you would get by shooting a high-powered bullet into a five-gallon can of water or shooting into a melon. I saw pieces of flesh and blood flying through the air, and the president slumped out of sight towards Mrs. Kennedy. The time lapse between the first and the second report must have been about four or five seconds. My immediate thought was that the president could not possibly be alive after being hit like he was. I still was not certain from which direction the second shot came, but my reaction at this time was that the shot came from somewhere towards the front right-hand side of the road. I did not notice anyone on the overpass, and I scanned the area to the right of and below the overpass where the terrain slopes toward the road on which we were traveling. The only person I recall seeing clearly was a Negro male in light green slacks and a beige-colored shirt running from my left to right up the slope across a grassy section along a sidewalk towards some steps and what appeared to be a low stone wall. He was bent over while running, and I started to point toward him, but I didn't notice anything in his hands, and by this time, we were going under the overpass at a very high rate of speed. I was looking back and saw a motorcycle policeman stopping along the curb, approximately adjacent to where I saw the Negro running. After we rode under the overpass, I again looked at the president's car and saw Special Agent Clint Hill lying across the trunk. He was looking back toward the follow-up car, shaking his head back and forth, and gave a thumbs-down sign with his hand. Matt Sack Roberts asked if anyone got the exact time of the shooting, and someone said about 12.30 p.m. Then someone told me to get inside the car and pulled me by the arm. My sunglasses fell off, and Special Agent Bennett handed them to me. By now, we were on an expressway, and a few people were standing in spots along the way, waving as we went by. Matt Sack Roberts was telling the other agents in the follow-up car to cover Vice President Johnson as soon as we stopped. Sometime around 12.37 p.m., we arrived at Parkland Memorial Hospital. I immediately ran to the left rear side of the president's car, reached over, and tried to help Mrs. Kennedy up by taking hold of her shoulders. She did not want to let go of President Kennedy, whose head she held in her lap, and she was bending over him. She said something like, No, I want to stay with him. 
Majin Hill had, in the meantime, opened the left rear door of the presidential convertible, stepped inside, and took Mrs. Kennedy by the arm. She released the president, and someone said, cover up his head. Majin Hill took off his suit coat and covered up the president's head. I also remember Mr. Powers leaning in the car and saying, Oh no, Mr. President, Mr. President. By this time, someone was lifting the president's body out of the right side of the car. Majin Hill helped Mrs. Kennedy out of the car, and I followed. Mrs. Kennedy's purse and hat and a cigarette lighter were on the back seat. I picked these three items up as I walked through the car and followed Mrs. Kennedy into the hospital. The president's body was taken directly to an emergency room, and I think I remember Mrs. Kennedy following the people in, but coming out almost immediately. The door to the emergency room was closed, and I stayed by Mrs. Kennedy's side. Someone, in the meantime, had brought a chair for Mrs. Kennedy to sit in, and she sat just outside of the emergency room. There were several people milling around, and with the help of a nurse, we cleared all unauthorized personnel out of the immediate area. Someone came out of the room that the president was in and asked if anyone knew his blood type. Basak, Kellerman, and Special Agent Hill immediately reached for their wallets. Masak Kellerman gave the man the information first. But at one point, someone else came out of the president's room again and said he was still breathing. Mrs. Kennedy stood up and said, Do you mean he may be alive? No one answered. Most of the time, while in the hospital, I stayed right next to Mrs. Kennedy. Twice, I believe, she went into the room where the president was. However, I remained outside by the door. A short time later, I still remember several people standing around, and I asked a doctor for help in clearing the area. At approximately 2 o'clock p.m., the president's body was wheeled from the hospital in a coffin into an ambulance. Special Agent Andrew Berger drove the ambulance. Asak Kellerman and Atsak Stout were in the front seat. Mrs. Kennedy, Admiral Berkeley, and Agent Hill rode in the rear of the ambulance with the president's body. I rode in the follow-up car behind the ambulance, which departed the hospital at 2.04 p.m. At 2.14 p.m., the president's body arrived at Love Field Airport, and several Secret Service agents immediately carried it on board U.S. Air Force No. 1 via the rear door. I followed on board behind Mrs. Kennedy and then moved to the forward section of the plane. I witnessed the swearing-in of President Johnson at 2.39 p.m. in the center compartment on board Air Force No. 1 and at 2.47 p.m. departed Love Field Airport, Dallas, Texas via Air Force No. 1 with Mrs. Kennedy and the body of the late President Kennedy. Upon our arrival at Andrews Air Force Base, Maryland, at 5.58 p.m., I helped carry the late 
President Kennedy's coffin from Air Force No. 1. The body was placed in an ambulance which departed Andrews Air Force Base at approximately 6.10 p.m., driven by Special Agent William Greer. May Sack Kellerman, Admiral Berkeley, and I rode in the front seat of the ambulance. Mrs. Kennedy and Attorney General Robert Kennedy rode in the rear of the ambulance with President Kennedy's body. The above party arrived at Bethesda Naval Hospital, Bethesda, Maryland, at approximately 6.55 p.m. Special Agent Hill and I escorted Mrs. Kennedy to the 17th floor, where we immediately secured the area. Only hospital personnel assigned to the area, Kennedy family members and friends, and authorized personnel were allowed in the area. My only left the 17th floor twice while Mrs. Kennedy was there, once to find ASAC Kellerman in the hospital morgue and give him a telephone message from Chief Rowley. The other time was to find a White House driver. At 3.56 a.m. on November 23, 1963, Mrs. Kennedy and Attorney General Robert Kennedy departed Bethesda Naval Hospital via ambulance accompanying the late President John F. Kennedy's body to the White House. Special Agent William Greer was driving and ASAC Kellerman accompanied. Special Agent Clinton Hill rode in the first limousine behind the ambulance, and I rode in the second limousine. The above party arrived at the White House at 4.24 a.m. Signed. Paul E. Landis, Jr. This document was originally assigned as Commission Exhibit 1024 by the Warren Commission. Ready for the results of Hocus Pocus? Well, here they are. Anytime you are comparing a two-page document with an eight-page document, you are going to find a lot more in the eight-page version. Landis's statement that he made on the 30th added much more detail to what happened at Love Field, among other things. But honestly, most of this detail was not that notable when it comes to solving the assassination. Perhaps there are a few historical facts that we might want to point out, such as the fact that Kennedy was presented with two hand-drawn portraits done in charcoal and encased in a black leather frame, a frame that he handed over to Landis. You don't hear much about that, but obviously it was a moment for a citizen in the crowd to give a gift to the president that he actually accepted. In another trivia fact, some may not have realized that Jackie got into the car and had to get back out to join the president when she realized he wasn't ready. To finish saying hello to all the enthusiastic members of the public who had come to Love Field to see them land. And perhaps there was one more touching moment as the president stopped and talked to an elderly woman in a wheelchair. Touching, but not that interesting when it comes to telling the story of the assassination. 
noticeably present in the documentation of the memo on the 30th is an expansion of the security details which the Secret Service agents took along the way as they made their way downtown. These comments seem to be inserted in the November 30th version in order to bolster the idea that the agents were continuously moving from the follow-up car to a position closer to the president in order to effectuate on-the-spot protection. For instance, there was the story about the little boy who ran from behind with a camera in his hand, and Landis would nudge Agent John Reddy, and Reddy would jump off and gently push the young man back in the crowd. And then there was the story of Clint Hill, who jumped off and assumed a position on the presidential limousine foot pedal. And at least one of these incidents was noticed by Landis and chronicled, as Clint Hill apparently did so on numerous occasions. Seemingly, these comments were inserted to erase the notion that the Secret Service agents were standing down at all times that day when protecting the president, standing down by staying on the running boards of the Queen Mary, rather than riding the foot stirrups on the presidential limousine. There were several references to buildings in their height on the motorcade route. Landis would make it a point to say that there were very few people on the rooftops of those buildings, and there were very few windows that were open, or people peering out through the windows, and that Landis was continuously scanning them. Well, if he was continuously scanning them, how come he never saw anyone in that window at the school book depository? There were many useless details included in the report dated on the 30th. One example was a comment where Landis said he glanced at his watch, but he didn't remember the time. <laughs> so what? And yet there were other seemingly useless details that actually might have been quite important, like the idea of documenting that Dave Powers was using his movie camera off and on as they progressed through the motorcade. Surely the idea that he was taking movies would be something very important in terms of evidence that the authorities would want to follow up on at that moment. Probably no one at that moment knew exactly which films existed and what they took footage of. Oh yes, and one more useless detail. Landis would tell that he had dropped his sunglasses and one of the other agents had picked them up and given them back to him. Again, so what? When they got to Dealey Plaza, some important details were consistent and others were not. He was clear in both the November 27th memo and the November 30th memo that when the first shot rang out, he was sure it was a report from a gun. But interestingly enough, in the November 30th edition, he would be clear that the first shot came from a high-powered rifle. While he described differently the intervals of time that elapsed between the first shot and the second shot, when you add it all up, both the November 27th memo and the November 30th memo have essentially the same versions in terms of time. In the November 27th memo, Landis explicitly states that he does not recall the third shot, yet he was silent on the idea of a third shot in the November 30th memo, mentioning only the first and the second shot. In the November 27th memo, 
He gives absolutely no narrative as to why he stayed glued to the running board as the first shot rang out and why he made no attempt in the whole six seconds of the firing sequence to dash to the presidential limousine and become a human shield. And this is particularly troubling when he stated in both memos that he was sure that the first shot had come from a gun. (laughs) So go figure. How could a guy be absolutely sure on the first shot that what he heard was a rifle and then not react at all, not take off to go cover the president or Mrs. Kennedy? I'm sure he's asked this same question himself, to himself, a thousand times over. Was it because he was out all night the night before at the cellar? Maybe. Maybe not. But in fact, it's been said by some that he was the guy the night before who was the latest getting back. Some would say he called it a night around 5 a.m. No doubt it might have been worth a few seconds of reaction that morning. Now, whether that would have been enough to save the president's life, well, we'll never know, but I'm just saying. And Landis was so sure that what he heard, that first shot, was a gun. So why really did he think it then might have been a firecracker? So his statement about firecrackers and the fact that he didn't see any smoke are somewhat incongruent when you take into consideration that he was so clear that the first shot was from a rifle. And while he is silent, completely silent, on this entire aspect in the November 27th memo, he does try to address the whole thing somewhat in the November 30th memo using what we all know to be faulty premises to try and support why he stayed on the running board. He said the car was moving too fast in the November 30th memo, but we now know right at that moment that the presidential limousine slowed down almost to a stop and perhaps was operating at something like five miles an hour and not 20 or 25 miles an hour that was purported in certain of the Secret Service agent statements. He would go on to say that he really didn't know how fast he was moving, which simply contradicts the idea also contained in the memo that he thought the car was moving too fast to jump off and dash toward the presidential limousine. You see, you just can't have it both ways. You can't say you thought the car was moving too fast and then say you had no idea how fast the car was moving. Again, I'm just saying. He also stated in the November 30th memo that he did not leave the running board when the first shot rang out in order to be closer to Mrs. Kennedy, the person to whom he was assigned to guard. Well, that's another dog that really doesn't hunt either. And why do I say that? Well, number one, he was on the right side running board of the Queen Mary, and Mrs. Kennedy was on the left side. And so certainly any dash that he might have made to the presidential limousine would have put him much closer to Mrs. Kennedy, much closer than he ever could have been by just continuing to stand there on the right rear running board. The door to the emergency room was in the presentation that we just made of the Interviews that were done with Sam Kinney, Kinney himself would defend why Reddy and Landis didn't jump off the running boards and take off toward the presidential limousine. Number one, 
he would make a comment that as Clint Hill dashed off the left side, he would veer slightly to the right in order to be safely away from Clint Hill. And that made it almost prohibitive that the two Secret Service agents on the right side of the car would be able to jump off and avoid being hit by the follow-up car that was then, at that very moment, swerving slightly to the right. It makes sense. And then, of course, there was the fact that Emory Roberts ordered them to stop, ordered them not to go forward. And, of course, that was never mentioned in Landis's memo. So, you see, it likely wasn't Landis's sole decision not to head toward the limousine, but it seems like there were just certain things he couldn't put in a memo. As I said, the November 30th version adds a lot of detail, and one other area that a lot of detail was added to relates to what happened when they got to Parkland. He was right there, and he helped to get Mrs. Kennedy out of the car as well as the president. The story he tells here of those first few moments as they were taking the president out of the car is an important addition to the historical record, as it is one of the most poignant and graphic of similar stories told about it. But the detail of what is revealed here in terms of what happened next is really damning in terms of the narrative that Mr. Landis is trying to tell right now. He would essentially say that he accompanied Mrs. Kennedy to trauma room one, but that he stayed outside the entire time. It's pretty clear, based on the way that he wrote this, that he did not enter the room, the trauma room one. Yet, in his current storytelling these days, he says he did enter the room, and that is how he was able to drop the bullet onto the president's stretcher. Well, enough about all of that. Of course, what everybody is waiting for, at least what I am waiting for, is the description in both memos of where the second shot came from. In the November 27th memo, Landis would say that his reaction was that the shot came from somewhere towards the front, but did not see anyone on the overpass. And then he looked along the right side of the road, and by that time, they were almost at the overpass. By the time he wrote the November 30th memo, he would say that he was still not certain from which direction the second shot came from, but his reaction at that time is that the shot came from somewhere toward the right-hand side of the road and that he still did not notice anyone on the overpass. So hats off to Mr. Landis, as both of his depictions of where the shot came from, the second shot, that is, were essentially similar between the November 27th version and the November 30th version. Yes, folks, he was another Secret Service agent with a bird's eye view, perhaps even better than Sam Kinney, because he was over there on the right side of the running board, perhaps leaning out a little bit and perhaps at a perfect angle to see the headshot coming from the front or the right front. Regardless of the controversy over the single bullet theory, whether or not the bullet that Secret Service Agent Landis claims to have found, whether or not that bullet is Commission Exhibit 399, well, to me, I'm more interested in his statements about where the second shot came from what he saw so clearly, and if it truly came from the front or the right front, then it's game over. And I don't really care who found the bullet in the back of the limousine, <laughs> because there were two shooters, 
at the very least. So maybe we're just asking Paul Landis the wrong question. Thank you for listening to episode 199 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.